This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, May 6, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. As the field of three-year-olds prepare to run for the roses in Louisville tomorrow, a Kentucky business continues its aggressive moves to prevent people from pretending that they're selling authentic derby pies. But what's in a trademark anyway? Cato Senior Fellow Walter Olson explains. When companies have trademarks, and this is a quirk of trademark law that uh, I think a lot of people really don't understand, which is if you're not constantly asserting that trademark, it, it can be uh, you can taken lose away. it. You can lose it. You you can lose it. And this makes trademark law different from copyright law or or patent law. Um, if you are tolerating the uh, use of your product name in a generic way, especially that is to stand for the same type of product but made by someone else, uh, you may lose it. And that means that many uh, trademark owners who might not want to pay lawyers so much to file so many uh, takedown letters uh, find that uh, the law is itself pressing them to be super aggressive. Okay, so the example we're uh, noting here, just before the first Saturday in May, the home of the the date of the Kentucky Derby, is Kern's Kitchen in Louisville. And I happen to know for a fact that there have been kitchens in Frankfort, Kentucky, and elsewhere that have advertised the sale of a Derby pie, but because of the the history of this kitchen producing it, and then they eventually filed for a trademark for Derby Pie, which I believe the the, the actual trademark symbol is uh, pressed into the crust of each of these pies. Uh, they've had to go around and uh, issue these letters, and I mean, I'm sure that creates a lot of bad blood to be using a name that is essentially pretty generic as your trademark. Certainly in the Louisville area, they have shut down uh, numerous other food providers who had listed a derby pie on their menu. And they've also done so to some extent on a national level when Bon Appetit magazine ran recipes for derby pie. And of course, any magazine that turns to its readers will get lots of submissions for this sort of thing. But they litigated against that magazine, and it ended in a settlement uh, short of the courts entirely being able to explicate who was right. Now, uh, one of these specific instances, a friend of mine, Rick Paul, hi, Rick, uh, owns a white light diner. He said he's been sued twice, and he, you know, elided, said, I make Kentucky bourbon pie. That's according to this NPR report. He makes Kentucky dirt, Kentucky bourbon pie, which is technically the same thing. And a bunch of different pie vendors uh, use cute circumlocutions like we're not allowed to call this derby pie or famous horse race pie. <laughs> and, you know, speaking of sporting events, there's a whole industry of circumlocution that goes on around the S-U-P-E-R-B-O-W-L, because that particular uh, sporting event is known as super aggressive, super, super aggressive about uh, grocery chains or uh, other purveyors of celebratory products that uh, might sell their uh, round of fresh cut vegetables and dip as a uh, Super Bowl platter. Oh, I'm sorry, I said it. <laughs> so you're not, instead, you're not selling anything. So, it's so okay. instead, they they call it a game day or a big game platter of cut carrots and celery. How does trademark law work that it is necessary 
to issue these assertions for a trademark that don't exist in these other elements of law? Well, trademark law starts with the uh, simple and plausible proposition that uh, if you have been uh, known and getting consumer goodwill for selling something and its formulation and the fact that it comes from you may be important elements in people's trusting it, that someone else shouldn't be able to come in and just uh, seem to be selling exactly the same thing. But at the same time, it was clear to the founders and everyone else who's thought about it that uh, unlike copyright law, where if you write a novel in principle, it's wrong for anyone in the world to um, sell it as their own work. Um, copyrights are, or rather trademarks, are limited geographically and limited by product lines. So uh, if you have an Acme rocket and you are selling it in uh, the arid states of the Southwest, um, it doesn't keep someone from selling Acme toothpaste in Vermont. Uh, it means that the likelihood of confusion by Mr. Coyote uh, on, on buying his next shipment uh, pertains uh, both to products. Uh, you know, he has bought eight consecutive Acme rockets, um, uh, but not to every possible good that could be sold. And also, to some extent, uh, if you've only sold it uh, in Roadrunner territory, uh, it isn't unfair for someone else to start up in a completely different part of the country. So what keeps trademark lawyers awake at night is the fact that many um, uh, former trademarks have been genericized through use, uh, sometimes in one country but not another. For example, uh, facial tissues um, have not become Kleenex as a generic here, and yet uh, aspirin, to take one well-known example, zippers, uh, escalators, various others, which started out as trademarks, um, now can be made by anyone because they are accepted as gen generic. And if you are a trademark lawyer, you may think that your entire professional future depends on never letting this happen to one of your clients. But it seems so odd when you think of a Kleenex or an escalator. These are names, and that name can become popular to refer to something, without, tra trademark, trademark or not. It doesn't keep you or I from calling a facial tissue made by someone else anything we please. But it does mean that the merchants involved in making money from selling it have to watch what they do, because that one has been successfully defended. Trademarks, like copyrights, like patents, are abstract. They are created essentially out of thin air over quite often goods, which are recipes or logos that are not rivalrous. But in a sense, they are rivalrous if you understand these uh, trademarks to confer uh, a, some sort of knowledge of value. That is, you're buying this product, and therefore, you know certain things about it. They're helpful when they work well in avoiding uh, what lawyers call the likelihood of confusion. And in keeping the commercial traffic to its own separate lens, they may prevent uh, some types of uh, quasi-fraud. They may pr uh, protect people's investment in uh, the good name that we hope capitalists want to get for their products. At the same time, they are so e easily something that can be turned into uh, gamesmanship for, to begin with because um, you can have a dubious trademark but simply have deeper pockets with lawyers to defend it and before long uh, 
people who were not in fact confused with you or certainly were not trying to be confused with you may have to take uh, the name of their business off their door. Um, happens again and again uh, with the expansion of restaurant chains, for example, or with other instances where someone has been using a, a trademark locally for a long time or using a, a net term in their business locally, uh, and some ambitious national operator uh, decides, no, I'd like that as a national trademark. Uh, but we've been using it since 1910. Well, sorry, uh, we have lawyers. Uh, do you really want to uh, get to know their names? Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. This month marks 10 years of the Cato Daily Podcast. Subscribe and share at cato.org slash podcast.